therefore eat and uh, celebrate all of the good things that God has done for you this past year. Uh, I know that uh, for many of us, this year has been a challenge. Um, we've had some, some things that have gone really well and some things that uh, if we were writing the story for ourselves, we would not have included that chapter. Uh, but nevertheless, for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we have more than enough reason to rejoice and God's good gifts to us. And supreme among all of God's good gifts to us is Jesus Himself. And so over the next four weeks, this week and for the next three, uh, as we come to Christmas, I want to be calling our attention to Matthew's account of Jesus' birth and reminding all of us of what a good gift we have and what a good gift we have been given in Jesus Himself. And this week, what I want to start with is uh, Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew. Now, if you're like most people, you probably skipped this part of your Through the Bible in a Year reading plan. But I want to show you this morning uh, why you should not do that. Because the genealogies in the Bible have some beautiful truth in them that God has for us, and this one most of all. So, if you have your Bible open to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, to, uh, to look at it with your Bible open and to stand with me as I read, if you're able. Uh, this is what the Word of God says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Minadab, and Aminadab the father of Nachshon, and Nachshon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jocelyn, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achan, and Achan, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 
generation. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are looking this morning at a portion of your word that for many of us is confusing. Uh, we're wondering why you would put it in here. But Father, I pray this morning that as we study that we will see with new eyes that every word in your, in your word is there with a purpose and a point and something that's there to teach us. Father, help us to not only learn what it is that you are teaching us, but to rejoice in and to obey what your word says. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you look at with me at verse 1, what you'll see there is Matthew's way of introducing Jesus and his genealogy. And, and what you'll see if you look at this genealogy closely is that it resembles very closely a book prior to this. This is the book at the beginning of your New Testament. What it resembles most closely in this section is the book that begins your Old Testament, the book of Genesis. You remember that Genesis is the book of beginnings, telling how the world itself began and what went wrong with it and how God took action to begin fixing the mess that our first parents made. And it's that last part that about God and how he has begun fixing the mess that makes Genesis a book full of hope. Genesis is not just a book about the fall, it's a book about hope, about how God is beginning to fix the mess that has been created by our first parents. And I hope you'll remember that before, this is important, before God announced his judgment on our first parents, Adam and Eve, for their sin, he announced that from them, he gave them a promise, he gave them a hope. He said, from you is going to come a mighty descendant, the seed of the woman he's called. One who will crush this deceiving serpent. He will deliver the world from the consequences of the sin that you all have brought into it. And after that comes the judgment. And then a series of genealogies. And again, this is the part of your Bible a lot of you skip over. But you shouldn't skip. Because the idea in this genealogy as you look at it is every one of these generations that passes, you're supposed to be looking. Is this the guy? Is this the one? Is this the one? Maybe this one. Maybe not this generation. Maybe the next generation. Maybe this person is the mighty seed of the woman who was to come, who would bring an end to all of the sin and suffering of the world that Adam and Eve inflicted on it with their sin. And as you keep reading Genesis, you keep looking for this person and you keep not seeing him. And eventually you learn, as you keep reading, that God will fulfill the promise of a Savior through a particular family. That out of all the nations of the world, they're all listed. All the nations of the world that descend from Noah and his descendants. You find that this one little Amorite fella from Ur of the Chaldees, a man named Abraham. Actually, at the beginning of the story, his name is Abram. And you and you find out, oh, this guy is going to be, it's going to come from his family. 
And then you read the story of his family and you go, really? Are you sure? This family? I mean, like, I'm not a soap opera watcher, but there's a lot of episodes of soap opera in this family that go on. I mean, I mean, one guy winds up, he winds up wanting to marry one, one sister, winds up the next morning with a different sister. Uh, there's all kinds of weird stuff that happens with this family, and you're thinking, this family is going to give rise to the saints? Are you sure? Lord, really? But you're still looking in hope. Through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through the sons. And then through one of the sons of Jacob, you learn about Judah, and it's through that son that the king will come. And you keep reading, and you find out it's not just through that son, but through one particular descendant of Judah. And come all the way down to King David. And so Matthew's point in Matthew chapter 1 is to go to, to, to call us back and point us back to Genesis and remind us of God's promise there that in this very first verse, Matthew is saying, Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. The one that all of these genealogies in your Old Testament you read and you go, is one of these guys the guy I'm supposed to be looking for? No. Matthew says, no, let me give you another genealogy, and this is the God. This is the one. Jesus the Christ, the Son of David, just like 1 Samuel 7 says. The Son of Abraham, just like Genesis chapter 12 says. This guy is the one, the promised Son, mentioned first in Genesis chapter 3, 15. This is the Messiah. And then verses 2 through 16 give us all the meat of the genealogy. And if you study it closely, you'll notice some things. Uh, you'll notice, first of all, you have the names of 41 men. You have the names of, 40, of four women. And one additional woman whose name is not given. We know who she is because of how she's identified, but we, don't, we aren't told her name. I'll tell you her name in a minute. Uh, but another thing you'll notice immediately is the repetition of the number 14. Do you see that? 14. Uh, Matthew has arranged the genealogy in patterns of 14 to highlight this number 14. Why is that? Because Matthew is a Jew. And he wants to highlight the fact that Jesus is the descendant of King David. Now, the name David uh, is made up of three Hebrew consonants. D, B, and D. Now in your Hebrew alphabet, that is the fourth letter, the sixth letter, and the fourth letter uh, in your uh, Hebrew alphabet in order. You add those up. Four, six, four. I'm not a math major, but uh, help me out here. That is what? Fourteen. Right? And so... So Matthew is repeating that over and over. 14, 14, 14. Why? Because Jesus is the son of David. That's really important. 
Because if he's not the son of David, he's not the guy we're looking for. And so Matthew arranges this genealogy specifically to highlight the fact that Jesus is the son of David. And as you keep looking at the list in detail, what you'll notice is this. It begins with Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. He's the recipient of God's covenant. He's the one through whom the promised son has to come also. He's the man of faith who would go so far as to willingly sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the covenant-bearing boy, the firstborn of Sarah in obedience to God. That's Abraham at his best, by the way. You read the rest of Abraham's story. You'll read that he abandoned the promised land at one point for Egypt, where he lied about being married to the woman from whom the promised child was supposed to come. While he was there, he picked up a slave girl to be his concubine. Through her, he conceived a child whose descendants are still to this day at war with the descendants of Isaac. You'll read as you continue reading Genesis that Abraham's son Isaac feared the Lord and received God's covenant but also that he emulated his father's cowardly habit of lying about being married to his wife. He also played favorites with his sons, and as a result, his two boys, Jacob and Esau, were estranged from one another, and the nations that they founded were at war with one another for, get this, 800 years afterwards. Jacob received God's covenant from Isaac, but he lied and cheated his way constantly through his life instead of trusting in God to bless him. In fact, he doesn't really become a worshiper of God until he's a very old man. The Bible says, records that he worshiped God leaning on the top of his cane. This is the first mention that, he, that we have of him actually worshiping God when he has a cane as an old man. He had four wives, which was wildly contrary to John's plan. He also played favorites with his sons, leading them to try to murder his favorite boy before they sold him instead into slavery and then lied about it. Jacob didn't learn to trust God and worship him until God gave him a good dose of his own medicine over a long period of time. He let him experience all of the deceit and treachery of his uncle Laban. He broke his hip and then his heart. When his beloved Rachel died, he was deceived into believing Joseph dead. And Jacob's son Judah was faithless to God for most of his life. And he raised wicked sons. So wicked that God struck two of them dead while they were married to the woman Tamar who's the first woman in this genealogy that we've seen named. Tamar married firstborn boy of Jacob, of Judah rather, and uh, he was wicked. God struck him dead. So she married the secondborn boy. He was wicked, so God struck him dead. The youngest boy was still a, a little kid, and rather than wait around for Judah to give him the, give her the third son, she decides to dress as a prostitute and she sleeps with her father-in-law, Judah, and conceived through him two sons, Perez and Zerah. And we know nothing then after them 
about the generations that come through Hezron, Ram, Amenadab, or Nachshon. And that's because these are the, the boys who were born during the time that Israel was enslaved in Egypt during 430 years of captivity there. But after the exile, I mean, after the exodus, we, we know that Salmon ma married Rahab. He's known in history uh, and elsewhere in the Bible as Rahab the harlot because she was a former prostitute who hid the spies that Joshua sent into Jericho before they took the city by God's power. She was not a prostitute by then. She'd become a linen weaver, uh, but the reality of her former occupation stuck to her for a long time, even after her conversion. About Salmon's descendant, Boaz, we know a little bit more, thanks to the book of Ruth, which is about how God rescues Ruth, the Moabite widow, and her mother-in-law, who was an Israelite, and he makes this Moabite woman, Ruth, part of his people. Her son, Obed, is counted among the Israelites, and he is the father of a man named Jesse, out of whose seven sons, Samuel the prophet picks out the youngest, David, to replace Saul as king. David was a great warrior, and among the best of Israel's kings, he wrote many portions of Scripture preserved for us to this day in the Psalms, but he was also a man who did not control himself for his design. He had multiple wives, contrary to God's command, in Deuteronomy 17, and depending on how you read the story, he was either seduced by and committed adultery with, or he raped the woman who is not named here as the mother of Solomon, whom we know was Bathsheba. Here she's called in the scripture the wife of Uriah as a way of hanging a bell on the fact that David's sin was against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Uriah, if you don't know, was one of David's closest friends part of his personal bodyguard. He was numbered among the 30 mighty men of David. David sacrificed him to cover up his sins and did so even though his prime minister was a man named Ahithophel who later led a rebellion against him because Bathsheba was his granddaughter. That's an ugly story. David knew who she was when the two of them sinned together. And what can I say about the kings after him? They're a mixed bag at best. Without giving you all the details on every one of them, and I won't for the sake of time, but let me summarize by saying they are truly a mixed bag. Josiah, who is mentioned here, is a better man than David. And he not only rid the, the land completely of its idols, but he led the nation in a revival that is unmatched by any king before or after him. But sinful pride led to his death. His grandfather, Manasseh, was the most wicked king ever to reign in Judah, but he was also a man who repented at the end of his life. Most of the rest were relatively good, but mostly, they also let idolatry continue rather than stamping it out. A few were actively wicked men who actively promoted idolatry. 
And every single one was flawed. Deeply. All of Judah's kings pointed out the need for a better king. And none were the promised son that Genesis indicated was coming. After Zerubbabel, the last descendant of David to have any ruling authority over the city of Jerusalem or anything around it, the only and he only had it for a couple years. He was a temporary governor under the Babylonians. After him, we know nothing about anybody else. Eventually, we come down to Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. And the picture there in that last section of the genealogy is of a long slide of the house of David from these exalted ancestors of whom a lot of the scriptures are written. We know almost nothing about these guys. And Joseph famously is a carpenter, not a king. His ancestors have not been among the great and powerful in 12 generations. And that, I think, is part of the point. As you look at this genealogy, what you see is a snapshot of history. There are things that are left out. In fact, at least three generations of, of kings in a line of kings are left out. There's a lot of people who are, from our perspective, at least nobody. Like, all right, anybody want to give us a biography on Sheltiel? Or Mathan? Eliezer? Who are these guys? We don't know. They're nobody, essentially. The only reason we know their names is because they're included here in this list. In this list, there's a good helping of good and godly men and a couple of godly women. But even the best of the men and the women in this list are men and women at best. Amen? They are. These are flawed, sinful people. They sometimes are deeply faithful to God and sometimes practice outright deep rebellion against him. There's more than a handful of wicked people in this book. But then after all this long and checkered history, we come down to Jesus, who is not just born of Mary, legally counted as Joseph's son due to their marriage, but actually born, as the scripture says, the son of God. Why do you think this, this list is given to us? I think it's to teach us something vital, that Jesus is the necessary Savior. The necessary Savior. These people are all, every single one of them, sinners. I could give you their story, and if I told it to you in detail, you would be like, why did you tell that in church in front of my children? Because it's in your Bible. All right, <laughs> but... But the point is this, that the very best of people, including people from the very best families, are still people at best, and they're all sinners, and they're all different kinds of people and all different kinds of sin in this list. There are prostitutes and polygamists and prophets in this list. There are carpenters and kings and concubines, 
slaves and shepherds, royalty and refugees, adulterers, idolaters, murderers, musicians, wimps, warriors, fornicators, foreigners, famous, forgotten, notorious, and not even mentioned. Lions, lion hunters, and liars. The prideful, the proverb writers, those of deep faith and those whom the Lord dragged kicking and screaming despite their rebellion into his family. And there's even some unbelievers mixed into this group too. In other words, what we see as we look at this list is people who are a lot like us. People who have shining moments of faith and faithfulness at times. And at times, moments of which we are deeply, deeply ashamed and justly ashamed. And that reality should encourage us. Because here's the deal, men and women, boys and girls. If Jesus the Messiah comes from such people, isn't it encouraging that he came for such people as that? Because he did. He comes from those kind of people for those kind of people. And the glorious fact that Jesus proclaimed about Jesus is that. That Jesus doesn't come from the best kind of folks. He comes from such an assortment of misfits and ne'er-do-wells that you go, there's no possible way God can be working through this mess. And it is because if we're honest about the story we would tell about ourselves, it would, we would say the same thing. There's no possible way that God can be working to save people who are this much of a mess. And yet that's exactly what He has come to do. God in Jesus Christ has stooped down to be born into our mess, not only to pull us out of our mess, but to make the world and all the people who believe in Him in it entirely entirely to put us back to the way that we were supposed to be in fact even better than Genesis is what we will be and what the world will be and we, he will do it as verse 17 says just as God promised if you look at verse 17 you have this underline for you all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations why is that important? Because he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. From David to the deportation to Babylon. Why is there a deportation to Babylon? Because all the people were so wicked that God said, you can't stay in the land anymore. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham who was to come to save all of these people from their mess and all of us from our mess too. And so, let me just encourage you this morning, no matter what your past history is, and I bet it's at least as interesting as this one, Jesus has come for you. Jesus has come for the parts of your story that, like Matthew did, you leave out when you tell the story. 
If you have shining moments of godliness, if you have a great heritage, Jesus came for you. Not only because of those moments, but in spite of them, and because of all of the moments that you don't shine and you aren't godly as well. If you're a mess with more sins piled up around your ears and over your head, then you can count Jesus came for you. Jesus came for us regardless of our story, regardless of our occupation, regardless of our degree of godliness, and in fact came despite our ungodliness and because of our ungodliness to save us. He came because He loves us and not only to save us, but to make us His own people and part of His own family. And nothing is better than that. Jesus' coming is the ultimate Christmas gift. It always fits. It never wears out. And it only gets better with time. Every other Christmas gift you're going to get, maybe it fits. Maybe it fits today. And about two weeks from now it won't. Either it will shrink or you will enlarge. Um, other Christmas gifts that you might get are amazing. And you love them until they wear out, they break, they get wet, or moldy, or whatever, right? They get worse over time. Because time wears down everything material in the world. But Jesus always fits. He gets better and better, and He never wears out. So if you don't know Him yet, let me just say this to you. If you don't know Jesus yet, Jesus came for you. Jesus came for you because we all needed Him to come. We all needed Him. In fulfillment of God's long ago promise, He has come and He came to save you from sin and death so that you need not fear death or judgment, but can go through your life right now, joyful and peaceful and transformed by His grace, and know that when you stand before God at the judgment, you will stand before Him completely fearless. Because your sins are canceled out and you are being welcomed home by your dad. He was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified for your sins, and raised from the dead to give you new life, which He offers to you freely as a gift. You will put your trust in Him to save you from sin and death and hell. Because you never have, for you receive that gift. This I hope that you will. And if you never have, and you're not sure what all this is about, I want you to stay after and run right down here to the front and buttonhole me and say, Pastor, tell me about this. Because I want to do that. Don't leave. Don't go home. The game's not that important. And neither is a nap. Come see me. And we'll talk about that. But for those of you who already know Jesus this Christmas season, don't forget to rejoice. I know it's busy. I know you've got a million and five things to do. And you're not sure how you're going to get all of them done. And there's people to see and presents to wrap and all this, these concerts and things and 
stuff and whatever to do. Don't forget to rejoice. Don't forget to celebrate. It's easy to forget the glorious reality of Jesus coming in the crush of busyness and activities and jobs and struggles and sickness, but Jesus came for you. He came to make you a new person, and He has begun that work, and He is going to carry it all the way to completion until the day when you stand perfect before God. And Christmas is a time we celebrate the fact that He came for us. But don't forget to rejoice in the One who came for you, in the One who loves you with an everlasting love, and the One who upholds you with His everlasting arms. He is with you in every moment, and He is leading you safely all the way home. I don't know if everybody's going to make it home for Christmas, but one day we're all going to make it home if we know Jesus. And in light of that, we should not fail to be joyful. We walk around just with goofy grins on our faces as believers in Christ. Because no matter what happens, someday we're going home and Jesus is going to make sure we get all the way there. Because He came for us. And we should rejoice every day, but especially at Christmas time. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You did send Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Son of all of these wild and woolly people who are just like us in all of their wild and crazy ways. And all of their need for sin is just like our... All their need for, for salvation from their sin is just like our need for salvation from sin. And You came to save them and save us because... You are a good God who loves us. Father, we rejoice in that. We thank You and we celebrate Jesus coming. In His name we pray. Amen.